This, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Liv Oath. Today we're bringing you a story about ends and beginnings, about finding fault lines cracking through our lives, and about the space of a second between bending and breaking. Second Story is proud to present Aaron Barlow. On January 3rd, 2016, my husband's wedding band snapped into two pieces. The chances of that particular alloy suffering that kind of fracture are supremely low, but when the wearer of said band is having a slow night at work, watching his beloved Steelers, and he hits his left hand on the bar just so in reaction to a bad play, apparently it can happen. I was sitting in our living room, lit only by the Christmas tree and the glow of Sunday night football. I just poured myself another glass of the second cheapest wine from Aldi (laughs) when I got a text from my husband that read, bad news, followed by a picture of his wedding band split into two uneven arcs. His next text read, I thought this thing was indestructible. We agreed that we'd figure out a solution soon, but the two pieces sat in a dish on his bedside table for a few weeks, abandoned. After nearly four years of marriage, it was strange to see him leaving the house with his ring finger bare. Almost three weeks later, I finally motivated him to do something about the ring. We ended up at Faye and Company at North and Halstead in Lincoln Park. The shop teemed with nearly engaged, clearly nervous couples. They all looked so young. The salesperson inspected the pieces of my husband's ring. Wow, I've definitely never seen this before, but the rings are designed to be easily cut off of fingers in case of emergency, she said. I watched her show her manager the broken band, and then she sauntered back to us. So the ring itself is $69.95 to replace, and the engraving is $25 extra. Okay, I said, and I thanked her. $95 or so to replace a wedding band that should last, in theory, forever, right? Of course. We were pretty broke, but this was important. She smiled at us, yet another happy couple. After she was gone and out of earshot, my husband turned to me and said, I don't think we need the engraving. I was slightly dumbfounded, but it has part of our vows and our wedding date. Yeah, but I never look at it. I don't look at mine, but I know it's there, I said. Yours is engraved, my husband of nearly four years asked me. Yeah, I was incredulous, but I attempted a smile. I took off my simple, slender, white gold band to show him. My ring finger is small, so the engraving wasn't even pretty. But there it was in awkward block letters, 5-26-12, go team. (laughs) Huh, he shrugged. I don't know why I didn't question him. I often think of that moment as the moment I should have left him, right there at the jewelry counter at Faye and Company. Maybe I should have shouted, clearly you don't want to do this anymore, leaving the salesperson stunned. Maybe we would have stormed out onto North Avenue on that bright, freezing February day, my angered breath steaming into the air and the traffic obscuring our pained words, and maybe then he would have told me that he didn't want to be married anymore. Instead, we ordered the ring and we included the engraving. The store said it would only take two weeks. It took longer. A few weeks later, I was making my morning coffee. 
He'd been out the night before having a meeting with a woman who was looking for some advice on a fellowship application. It was only supposed to be dinner, but he didn't return home until after 2 a.m. That was not entirely unusual. He'd often go out after work and not return home until late, until after I'd fallen asleep. In fact, we rarely went to bed at the same time. He'd left his iPod Touch charging in the kitchen. It used to be mine, but I gave it to him so he could use it at the gym. The iPod is too old to be updated, so the icons appear strange and hopelessly out of date. As I was waiting for my kettle to whistle, it illuminated. It was the woman from the previous night, a message notification from Facebook. Thank you for bringing up the elephant in the room, the preview said with a winky face emoji. When he finally woke up, I made him some tea and I asked if he was hungry. I didn't ask him about dinner or the message. Later, when he got out of bed to get ready for work, I said, you were out late last night. Yeah, he said, and he turned and walked down the hall into the bathroom and turned on the shower. I let it go. Later that month, he arranged for another woman to come to Chicago to workshop her play for the weekend. She came to our apartment. I served her wine, then we dropped her off at her Airbnb, and then the next day they workshopped her play all day and night, and I waited for him until I could no longer stay awake. We had an awkward lunch the next day after the public reading, and then the playwright drove home. She hugged me. At a play later that same month, I saw him reach out to rub the back of another woman's neck. Later at a bar, I saw that same woman drunkenly lean into him and their intimacy jarred me. The very next week, I had just trudged up the stairs and into the apartment with bags full of groceries so I could prep our meals for the week when he told me that the two of them were going for a drink and that I was welcome to join them if I wanted. I was standing in the hallway Disheveled from my errands, I hadn't even unloaded the bags or taken off my coat, and something inside me cracked. Of course I want to go. I'm your fucking wife. He immediately threw his hands up. I'd never spoken to him like that. Whoa, he said, as though he'd just encountered a wild animal. He started for the door without saying another word, and I ended up apologizing. The first weekend in March, on our way home from a bar one night, he told me, sometimes I don't think there's a point to being married if you don't have kids. I asked him what he meant, but he said he couldn't explain it. We'd both had some drinks and we were going nowhere, so instead I initiated sex. No man ever leaves a woman who puts out, right? I reached for his belt and I pulled him into the back seat. While he was fucking me, I looked him in the eyes and I said, I don't deserve you. I thought I was trying to be sexy, pathetically, girlishly arousing, submissive and desperate. It was pitiful. The following Thursday, we picked up his new wedding band. He was looking at his phone the entire time that I paid and I had to get his attention to get him to put the ring back on his finger. The salesperson saw all of this. The next Monday, he told me that he was going to a preview of a show that night. He said he'd be home late. I had a good friend in the show. There was no preview that night. He had looked me in the face and lied to me. He easily, openly, unabashedly lied to me. He lied to me about something that he knew I could easily disprove. And then he left for work. I knew he'd be gone all day at work and then at the non-existent preview. I knew I wouldn't be hearing from him. I also knew that his gym bag was on the floor of our bedroom, and I knew his iPod was in it. They say you should not snoop unless you are prepared to deal with what you find. 
We'd been together for nearly eight years, and I'd never snooped. But now, the iPod glowed in my hand. Facebook is there, and so is messages and mail. It was all there, neatly laid out for me. Nothing had been deleted or concealed. There were sex, pictures, emojis, gifts. He had messaged the elephant in the room woman to tell her that he wished he could be with her instead of going to an Oscar party that I organized at the home of the couple who stood up in our wedding. I scrolled through his emails to the playwright who'd hugged me. She's unhappy in her marriage. Ah, yes, she's the one with the kid. The question about the point of being a marriage if you don't have kids were her words, not his. And she wants to move out. Oh, and they are in love. I kept reloading, going further back in time, trying to piece together dates and information when I came across the very same photo of his broken wedding band from the evening of January 3rd, 2016, that he'd sent to the playwright in nearly the same moment he'd been texting it to me. The accompanying text read, uh-oh. And that is when I learned the exact meaning of the phrase, blind with rage. This photo on this little obsolete device was showing me the truth of my life of the past few months, the details to which I was not included, the digital proof of his lies and cowardice. But the most hurtful part was the absence of my presence in his communication with these women. It was as if I didn't exist at all, as if I hadn't existed for months. The inventory of all of the times in which I'd been walked all over during our marriage swiftly downloaded into my brain. I had seen the signals, and he openly presented me with all of the evidence. I only barely had to look for it. I don't know what time he came home that night. I slept terribly, my only dreams just flashes of what I'd read. I knew that I needed to review the facts before I took action. The next morning, Tuesday, March 15th, he was up early. The iPod was still in his gym bag where I'd left it. He started the shower and I scurried to the bag. Suddenly he returned to the bedroom. What the fuck are you doing? Nothing, I said, I'm sorry. Why are you going through my shit? I'm sorry. Really, I love you. I shouldn't have done that. And strangely, I was sincere. At least in that moment, I tried to mean it. I didn't know what would happen. And I was so conditioned to care about his feelings and protect his ego that of course I apologized. I was still terrified by the idea of our marriage ending, the work of untangling and extracting this person from my life, the idea that the last few months had been a lie and now our nearly eight years together felt like a waste. He left for work and he didn't take his gym bag. I don't know if he knew I was going for his iPod, but he left it all there for me. I fished it out of the bag. I went through the messages and emails all over again. I confirmed what I'd read, and then I was done. I made that decision quickly and recklessly without even consulting friends or family, but I knew I couldn't be with someone who doesn't respect me. I knew that I deserved better. I heard his keys in the door. Hey, would you come here? I need to talk to you. He shuffled into the living room like a little kid kicking rocks. I said it just as I'd practiced. I know you're having an affair and you need to find another place to live. He didn't say anything for a while. He asked me how I knew. I told him about the iPod. I told him I knew he'd said he'd loved her. He told me that was true, he did love her. 
I asked him when he was going to tell me. I was going to tell you, eventually. He also told me that when she was in town, he said, well, maybe, see, she's in an open marriage and she also has sex with women, so we thought maybe... He trailed off. I was the afterthought. No one asked me what I wanted or if I was even attracted to her, and would they tell me that they were in love with each other before or after we all slept together? I had just blindly believed him for months. I couldn't even think about what else I'd blindly believed in the years we'd been together. We sat in silence in the living room. He did not apologize or justify his actions. He did not suggest that we work on our marriage, but neither did I. He just sat there, staring at the floor. Suddenly, he looked up and said to the far distance, everyone's gonna know. Yeah, I said. Everyone's gonna know. I couldn't help but laugh. The space between us was so suddenly unfamiliar. We sat there as strangers on the sofa we'd purchased together as a couple, as our photographs and artifacts peered back at us from the TV stand. There wasn't anything left to say. He went outside to smoke and slammed the door for some reason. I went to bed, alone, of course but I was used to it by now. This story was produced by Casey Truba, curated by Amanda Delheimer, directed by Allison Hines, and music and sound design by Misha Fixell. The Second Story podcast is produced by me, Livo. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a City Arts Grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, our 2018 to 2019 season sponsor, Skadden, Arp, Slate, Meager, and Floam, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Liv Oath, and this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.